0: Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for protecting our youngins as they run about the world. We ask that you be with us as we're going into your word today, as we're investigating certain things relating to your coming. Um, The coming that we're talking about specifically is when you appear in the clouds and when we go to you. We call this the rapture. We're grateful that your word teaches it. We're grateful for the promises of the rapture. And these are tremendous promises that we're still learning a lot about. So I ask that you give us discernment, that you help us to truly understand what your word says about them, especially as we are investigating the various viewpoints of the rapture, because through this knowledge and through this understanding of this biblical knowledge, we'll be able to better live our lives according to your word. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right we're going to go ahead and get started. So it's been a while since I did a summary, so we're going to go ahead and do that. So we are still studying at this day and age um, this idea of the rapture of the church. More specifically, the idea that we are proposing to be the most biblical viewpoint is called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, where people sometimes get caught up is we there's a reason I don't call that the pre-millennial rapture of the church, even though we are premillennial. We're pre-millennial in relation to the second coming of Christ, where we believe that he is going to come before pre-like premillennial, before the millennial kingdom. But we are not premillennial when it comes to the rapture on its own. That's important distinction. Because there are people in traditional premillennialism who said that they were premillennial rapture, rapturists, that what they really meant was they are, Jesus is going to rapture the church before the millennial kingdom, which is postmillennialism, in essence, where they believe that the rapture is the same thing as the second coming. Um, it's a different term for it that I became aware of as I was reading some different, different viewpoints, especially in the post-trib group. A lot of people in history have believed in that, yet called themselves premillennial. Um, because in essence, those who still held to this idea of a literal kingdom on earth could still not believe in a rapture, yet also believe in a rapture before the millennial kingdom happened. They just combined it with the second coming. So it's just just kind of a nuanced point that I wanted to make you aware of, Um Premillennial is something we believe in in relation to the second coming. We believe Jesus is going to be coming back before he establishes his literal kingdom on earth. We also believe in a rapture before that, but it's not the same thing. We talked about that extensively. So that being said, we believe in the midst of this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture that it can happen at any moment. And there are a few reasons for that. The first is that we believe that there's nowhere in the New Testament where it says, implicitly or explicitly, that something has to happen before the events that are described in John 14, 1 Thessalonians, as well as Revelation have to happen in correlation with the rapture. We don't believe that the rapture has any signs that will precede it. There aren't any or signs or events that have to precede it. Something may precede it. Like, for instance, we could have been raptured any point prior to 1948. What happened in 1948? Establish, the establishment of Israel as a nation. That's pretty significant, because why, why did they have to be established? Well, in order for them to... Make a covenant with Antichrist, which we know at that point, that apostasia that's talked about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that has to happen to begin the tribulational period. That can't happen if they're not a people that can make a covenant. Right? So it's just something to understand, something to be very particular about, because that, in essence, is something that has already started to take place. In terms of Israel becoming a nation, the initial regathering that's talked about in preparation for judgment, I believe, has already begun. We see that in grand numbers. Roughly half the world's population of Jews is already gathered in Jerusalem, and there are more that are coming. There are a lot of social programs in Israel where they're trying to get people and incentivize Jews to come back to the land. So in a lot of ways, that's already at work. There, that is a prophesied event, but there's no reason why the rapture had to wait until after that happened. We could have been raptured before then. We could have been raptured in the first century. We could have been raptured before Augustine wrote The City of God, which is a, an incredibly heretical book. Um, at, at any rate, there's nothing in history that had to happen before we were raptured. Yet, the Lord has tarried. And what, what is the result of that then? Well... We've seen a great number of people choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, in an amazingly large number, which again just goes to show the grace of God. So, as we're looking at this, we believe that the rapture could happen at any moment. We believe that there are no signs that need to precede that. I can't emphasize that enough. Yet, if you believe in a mid-tribulational rapture, like where the rapture happens at the midpoint of the trib, a pre-wrath rapture, um, which is essentially uh, a slightly later version of the mid-trib group. The only difference is they put a distinction on when the wrath of God starts. They believe the exact opposite of what we believe and what we've been teaching on that. If you've been following the Revelation study, which I know you have, where we believe the minute Jesus, because it is Jesus opening the scrolls, begins to open the seals in the seal judgments, the tribulational period, and the wrath of God begins. That's super significant because it's Jesus that is opening the seals, bringing on terrible judgments. The seal judgments aren't something to push out of the way or marginalize just because the trumpet and the bull judgments are more severe. They're still pretty severe. They're incredibly severe. So in any case, it's still the wrath of God. So we're going to, but we'll interact with the pre wrath group at some point later. But the important thing to think about is if you are in either of those groups, if you're in the post trib group, if you're in a random uh, partial rapture perspective, which we'll spend, I don't know, 10 minutes on at some point, that'll turn into an hour. Um, So stuff like that. If you believe in any other viewpoint, you have to de facto deny our argument and assertion that Jesus could come back at any moment because you believe either the trib has to start, you believe that it has to start the trib, you believe that it happens at the midpoint, later on in the trib, at the end of the trib. No matter what case it is, you know and you stand in a position where you think, well, Jesus can't really come back today because all this stuff has to happen. And we would disagree with that. So what we've been doing and we've been taking quite a bit of time to do it, um, I think for good reason is we've been looking at what I would consider to be generalized arguments in favor of an assertion that Jesus couldn't come back today. So that's what, these are the arguments people believe, and this is what they bring up in reference to our position. So just as a really quick summary, we looked at several arguments, and these are, um, like I said, these are what I would consider the best arguments. I've scoured the internet the darkest corners of theological opinions on the internet to find what I consider to be the most solid arguments for against our position of eminence. Um, I've also been reading uh, Robert Gundry's book on post-tribulationalism, the pre-rapture standards in their books. So what I did is I took all of the arguments that I thought made a decent biblical case, And you'll see that I also included some philosophical arguments in this, just so that we could figure out what, uh, not just the implications of the arguments are, which we've also been observing as we've been going through it, but more specifically, how they measure up with Scripture. So we looked at this idea of the watching, waiting, and expecting argument. Um, And part of the reason for that argument was to really show us why we believe what we believe. Because it's when somebody brings up an argument or an opposition to our viewpoint— that we are truly actually able to measure the legitimacy of our own perspective. And that should be something we try to do with everything. If somebody says, I believe you can lose your salvation, in the process of teaching them why that is absolutely unbiblical, you can come to a deeper and more solid foundational understanding of the Gospel of John, of different parts of First Corinthians, whatever the case may be. you'll you'll understand not not just what you believe in, right? Because it's not just about strengthening an argument that we've chosen to put all of our stock into. It's about figuring out what the Bible says. And if we're wrong on something, being willing to shift to do what the Bible actually says. Um, But we're doing that in light of all of Scripture so that we're not just moved to and fro by any wind of doctrine like has been mentioned in the epistles. So in understanding that initial argument... We actually came to the conclusion that, well, first of all, we don't just get the idea of imminence from references in the New Testament vaguely saying we're waiting for the coming of the Lord and you ought to live a Christian life, right? Because if we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, well, that could technically be a second coming. Like we could be eagerly awaiting the second coming because we know what follows, right? So we actually have to look at the context of each one of those verses, Well, the first thing we notice is that they're always talking to Christians when we're looking at that. Whether we're looking at the book of Jude, um, Timothy, the writings of Paul, whatever the case may be, it's always talking to Christians. And that for the verses, if you remember, that we looked at. The second part is that we don't just (coughs) base our understanding of an objective observational viewpoint about imminence just off of the verses that make reference to the coming of the Lord. We actually look at the promises like, first of all, John 14, which says what? It says that we are going to be taken by Jesus to the Father's house. Second coming, if my memory, my rusty memory serves in Revelation 19, is where Jesus comes with the saints to make war with the evil Gentile nations and dominate them and initiate his kingdom. It's a, a (laughs) they're so big in terms of their polar opposites that there's really no way to make them the same event. Yet that's what we see people try to do. They try to do gymnastics to try to make that work. Um, We actually base our idea of eminence off of, I would think in my mind about three main things. The first one is that we believe that the rapture is imminent because there are no, as we said, no events that have to take place before we're raptured. Second one, we, we understand the description of the rapture as given in the New Testament, and we also understand the fact that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 5, Revelation 3, we get this idea that we know the end date. We know that we're not going to be here for the tribulational period because it says that, because we're promised that. Um, so that being said, since we're promised an end date, and we know that we can't be in the trib, And we know the beginning date, obviously the beginning of the church, um, and we know that there are no signs that could happen. We know it has to happen sometime between this moment in history, in time, this exact moment, and the tribulational period. So we know that it has to happen sometime in that place. So when we're talking about imminence, we're not just basing it off of a a verse, or 18 as it were, (laughs) um, even though I don't have the slide of them up there, uh, that give us references to the coming of the Lord. We're basing it off of, all of these different conditions, that would lead us to that viewpoint, that understanding. So again, we're not, we're not trying to force the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture just because we like it. Just like we're not trying to force the idea that hell isn't eternal because we don't like hell. right? We don't get to decide what we like and what we don't like. Because ultimately, our minds are this big, feeble in understanding. And it's our job to look at the word of God and actually come to a conclusion on the basis of what he has revealed there. We do that because we've looked at history, we know the legitimacy of the Word of God, we've seen actually the fact that it's been carried over through generations, that it hasn't been corrupted. You can study apologetics and you'll come to the conclusion that the Bible is the only text that we can actually trust in. It's the only text that we can look at and know is true. So we're able to actually look at these things And we we come to our conclusion off of what is known as an inductive study method, this idea of taking, we'll call it, the apples right off the ground, the stuff that we can easily see, and deriving our theology upon Scripture as a whole. So, again, just saying, the first argument that they have against this, which is actually the most common, especially in the pre-wrath group, which I think they make the best arguments, if you look at them, um, They tend to interpret scripture literally 98% of the time. Post-tribulationalists sometimes interpret scripture literally. Um, But in any case, that's their main argument. That's the one that's mainly propagated. And basically, whether it's Marvin Rosenthal or Alan Kirshner, you're going to have that argument being brought to the forefront every single time and we spent a lot of time on that. The next one is this idea of the over-literalist argument of 1 Thessalonians 4, where they're saying Paul is wrong because he was saying that we, who he thought that he was going to be in the rapture. Now, we expanded on that. It's it's just over-literalism of the text. And it is po- we believe in literal interpretation, but it is possible to over-literalize the text. And they know that too when they make that argument. So they're really just doing it just to try to again, uh, really deny the inspiration of Scripture. And we went into, at that time, why they were doing that. So when, it, when Paul is saying, we who are alive and remain, he's not saying under the Holy Spirit that he was actually going to be raptured. right? He was ho- in hopeful anticipation because of what Jesus had told him about the fact that they were supposed to expect a rapture. We see that throughout the New Testament, and the fact, the, the basic fact, that they knew a lot about the events of the tribulational period. They had Jeremiah, they had Daniel, they had Zechariah, they had all of these books that give them this idea of the fact that there's going to be somebody who's going to make a covenant with Israel. They knew all of these things were going to happen, and yet they weren't saying, let's wait until there's a covenant made with Israel. They were saying, we're looking for the Messiah. So again, That's an argument more almost half from silence, so it's a little bit of a logical fallacy. That's why I didn't make that argument when we went into there. But the fact that they're making us look towards Christ should really demonstrate to us and show us exactly where their hearts were and where their anticipation actually lied. So again, we looked at the idea of prophesied events in the New Testament relating to Peter, we, we looked at all of those things. We looked at the fact that Jesus can't possibly return at any moment because of Matthew 24. We went into what I would consider to be a synopsis of Matthew 24, just to show the fact that, again, Matthew 24 was to answer a question the apostles had about the signs of the times and the coming of the Lord. And Jesus didn't address the apostles. He addressed, it, he addressed Israel. We actually saw that in the prior verses, and we saw that in the Jewishness, of the things that he said. In fact, we can look at it again. We're not going to. A lot of the things talked about Matthew 24, addressed to the apostles, could not have been directly applied to them. But make perfect sense if you apply them generally towards Israel as a nation. And we see that in the fact that the idea of gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth is actually a prophesied event in the Old Testament. We understand that not to be, uh, not to be the rapture. For many reasons, no matter how smart of an argument beloved members of our church, like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, make Matthew 24 is relating to the nation of Israel during and at the end of the tribulational period. That's the purpose of that. Next, we looked at this idea that the rapture can't be the next event on the horizon because there are saints in the tribulation. Again, we looked at the fact that saints, is, it's a general term. It doesn't have to mean church. We make an assumption that it means church because it's often used of the church in the New Testament. But again, it's using the idea of two correlating words um, and creating a false equivalency. We're trying not to do that. We're trying to look at what it actually says. So could you come to that conclusion? Yes. Is it wrong? I think so. Are there a lot of similarities? Yeah. Because just like if a person believed during the earthly ministry of Jesus and wasn't a part of the church— a person later on during the church could also be a believer who could also be a saint. And then a person, like, I'll put it this way. If we were raptured today, how would the news spin that? Let's think about that for a second, just, just for fun, just as a thought exercise. Well, somebody's probably going to mention aliens. Somebody's probably going to mention the government. And somebody else is probably going to say something about, oh, I don't know, evolution took them. Right? There will be all these different ideas. But our family members who heard us talk about our expectation of the Lord will know that we were raptured. And it will be so abundantly clear, especially of the fact that, first of all, they'll notice nobody's going to pay taxes at our church because we're all going to be raptured. So they're going to notice pretty darn fast that we're not here anymore. And the second point is that that's the group of people who are, I believe are actually going to become these tribulation saints, the people that had an understanding prior to the rapture. Now, again, they're gonna be, I think there's going to be a gap of time between the rapture and the tribulational period. So I think there are going to be a lot of people that are saved going into it. But again, that's just my thought, right? But at the end of the day, that's part of the reason why it's important for us to understand the distinction between people, because there are going to be believers in the tribulational period. We're actually seeing that right now in our study of Revelation, and we're going to see it more as we look at the different martyrs who died during the tribulational period who are demanding justice for the crime. That being said, we looked at this idea that God isn't going to exempt—we spent I don't know, eight weeks on this, that God isn't going, I don't know how many weeks. It's been a lot. God isn't going to exempt the church from something that he's going to put Israel into. And we noticed and we looked, the reason this was unique to look into is because this is absolutely common in any reformed church. Because what they believe, and they, it's funny, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine who's reformed on Friday. They don't believe that the, uh, that the church um, replaces Israel. They don't believe that at all. They will say that till the end of their days. Because how can you replace something that already existed in the Old Testament? Right? So that's kind of like the argument that they give because they think the church was in the Old Testament. Because the church has to be in the Old Testament in order for them to try to make it seem like all the covenants and promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. They lose the descendancy. They lose the ethnic root to those promises. And then they assign them to the church and say the church is Israel. So, again, if you word this, if you semantically rearrange the argument, you can make it seem like God is still holding up his end of the bargain to the Jews. So again, that's the thought process behind that argument, and so that's why you need to look into the history of Israel. You need to look at who they are right now in the church, what their future is. Look at the church, who she is, what she's doing right now, and what she. Is she going to be in the trib? Is there any promise that she's going to be in the trib? No. Is there any reason for her to be in the trib? Well, she's not a nation that needs to reconvert to Jesus to actually believe in the king of God's own choosing, so probably not. She's also not a Gentile nation that's unbelieving because, again, every believer of the body of Christ who believed in Christ, who trusted him, is a member of the church. So, again, there's no reason for us to go through that We were already going through trials in our lives. Again, it's not even a penance thing because the wrath of God was already carried on Jesus's soldiers. So when we're approaching a study like eminence and we're trying to answer these objectives, it's difficult because we really have to pick out where people are coming from. And I know this has become a half an hour introduction to the lesson, but I think this is really important because once we finish what we're looking at today, and once we look at the history of the pre-tribulational rapture as talked about in the church, we're done with objectives, ob- objectives to imminence. I got rid of the other slide, um, and I've been including them in a lot of our arguments, so we didn't have to do this for the next 40 years. So, so again, that's, that's part of the reason I'm going through this general um, summary is because I think it's really important as we're looking at the arguments. And, like, I'll put it this way. When I started as an electrician's apprentice, the first thing we were taught and again, anybody who knows an electrician will laugh at this, but we were told that we wanted, we had to try to be the smartest person in the room. That's not uh, an arrogant statement. What that really means in practice is knowing what the plumbers are doing, what the HVAC people are doing, what the actual specifications of the job are doing, so we don't do contractual (laughs) violations when we're doing an install, and all of these other things so that we know exactly what we're doing That still applies right here. It's not The goal isn't to be smarter than everybody else. The goal isn't to know more than everybody else. The goal is to be correct. Not in an arrogant way, but in a, we only have a very short amount of time in our existence as eternal, immortal beings, which once you're born, you're immortal. Charlie's immortal. Where he spends his eternity is going to be dictated by whether or not he spends it his, this very short amount of time in his life trusting in Jesus or not. Whether he spends his eternity in the optimal way possible, if he chooses Christ, is based upon how he lives his life and how we live our life is based upon what we believe and what drives our decisions. So that's why it's important to know this stuff. That's why this study, which may seem abstract, that may seem to be a little bit on the, you know, on the fringes in terms of its relevance... Uh, is quite the opposite, just like any study of the Bible is. They're all relevant because God's, God wouldn't reveal something if he didn't want us to understand it. God could give every single person a vision if he wanted to. That's not what he wants. What he wanted and what he did is he wrote it down in a human language for us to understand. So when we're looking at all of these things, I think it's vitally important that we keep a good perspective as for why we're doing this. Um, just like if, we were, if this were a study on the book of Revelation, like that's why Kurt goes through the summary when he's starting, just to put us back into perspective about what we're actually looking at, especially relating to that book, because it's hard to keep a good perspective. So what we're going to finish today is this basic idea, and you'll notice I kind of introduced it a little bit, Paraphrased it while we were going through the lesson last week. Um, the uh, well, the rapture is a super nice idea, but no one can know for certain. So it's always best to hope for a pre-tribulational rapture, but you know, let's plan for the worst, right? And it makes logical sense from a planner's perspective, because if it were amb- if it were ambiguous and it could be pff, a coin toss whether or not we're raptured or not, well, yeah, don't plan for the one that. You'd be screwed over if you were to plan for. Don't plan for the one that would leave you hanging in the wind. So we're going to look at a few quotes and just kind of, I'm not going to go through as much. It's kind of a reiteration almost of the last one that we did last week. Just as a reminder, the one we did last week was that this is, it was a basic assertion that the pre-trib rapture is a damaging doctrine, that it's dangerous, that it's uh, satanic, um, and we, we looked at all of these different ideas, and again, they're going from the perspective that they've learned their whole lives, which is that the pre-tribulational rapture is false. That's their perspective. Now, if that's true, and you have an entire generation of believers who are believing they're going to not go through uh, the tribulational period, then suddenly you do have a problem. Because if God had revealed that we were going to go through it, and we all believe we weren't, well, again, what do people normally question? when they find a confliction of information. They don't question their understanding of the Bible when something happens they're not expecting. They question the Bible. Again, that's just human nature because of our arrogance. We assume that we're correct and the Bible isn't. So we're going to be looking at a few more arguments, kind of in the same vein, but in a slightly different flavor. So the first one is from pastorvlad.org. He had a very nice eye-catching article called Seven Reasons Against the Preacher trib Rapture. I found this one yesterday. It says that nothing makes believers special to be exempt from the tribulation. Suffering weeds out compromising Christians. Believers for the past 2,000 years have undergone great suffering, death, and persecution for the cause of Christ. Just because the Western church enjoys freedom... For many believers around the world, tribulation isn't, is a normal experience. See 2 Timothy chapter 3, we looked at that, and John 16, we also looked at that. Dr. Michael Brown says that the tribulation is the normal experience of believers in this age. Not experiencing affliction is a blessed exception that we should enjoy when we have it. But we should not count on it as if it were our right in Christ. We should always be ready to suffer for Christ and always be ready for Christ's return. Well, I agree with that last sentence. Jesus is coming. Tribulation is coming. We will meet Him regardless of when it happens. We need to prepare for persecution and for tribulation, but we pray that we escape it. Right. So again, there are a few things. I think the obviously ignore the first part. We'll, we'll read the Dr. Brown quote because that's really the core of his argument against the preacher of rapture. So a few things. Yes, we believe that we will suffer persecution. Yes, every single person in this room has undergone something, whether it was direct persecution on your faith, whether it were the trials of living in a mortal, non-resurrected body. Um, whatever the case may be, we've all interacted with that. And we also understand that what we're living in is a bubble, Right? And so We're not acting as if this bubble is owed to us, but we're enjoying it. We want to protect it, uh, especially in Christianity. And again, we support a lot of Christians around the globe. Just saying that because we're living in a bubble, that we aren't connected to the rest of the body of Christ is just a lie. There are, you can make a, a solid argument for that pretty easily. But again... Saying that we should always be ready to suffer for Christ and always be ready for Christ's return. I agree with that completely. We should. At any moment, we should be ready because our testimony, again, what are people killed for in the tribulation period, for the most part? Their testimony of faith in Christ. What are people killed around the globe right now for? It's not because they believe in Marxism. Okay? Although, that will ultimately end up with a similar uh, experience. But they're Christians are normally killed for their testimony of faith in Christ because they would rather be willing to die than renounce the Lord. Not, again, because they think they're going to lose their salvation, but rather because why would we reject someone that has never rejected us? Why would we... That testimony of our death goes a lot farther than you think. So, again, you you can look at these things, too. You could read Voice of Martyrs and realize that to be the case. But, again... This perspective has a problem because it results in not trusting in those promises that Jesus gave to us in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation. Next one, and this one is a little bit longer, but I thought it was hilarious. Um, actually that's going to be the next one, but in any case, Christians are called to alert and called to alert and ready with regard to Christ's return. Mark thirteen thirty three. But what does that really mean? For one thing, it means that we should be aware that the end times period could begin on any day during our lives and that we should be watchful for the signs of his coming. However, it means something else too. We should be resolved to endure the events of the upcoming period of great tribulation in the most God-honoring way possible. How would we do that? Stockpile supplies? Arm ourselves with weapons? Find some place to hide? no we should look to scripture for an answer. As explained in the great harlot in Babylon, it's a book that he's quoting, Revelation uses Babylon as a metaphor. Aw, got that wrong. This metaphor takes the experience that Israel had with Babylon and relates it to the experience that the church will have with Antichrist's final kingdom. That's terrible. But we'll, we'll continue. This Babylon metaphor is rich with meaning. Because it gives us much understanding about what's happening in the end times and why. This metaphor even helps us know how we can endure the great tribulation in the most God-honoring way. It turns out that we've been given a detailed account of one Israelite who endured Babylonian experience in a way that was pleasing to God. His example thus provides a valuable guide for Christians who likewise wish to endure the great tribulation in in a way pleasing to God. Who is this Israelite? Is this prophet Daniel himself? On three different occasions, Daniel received news from heaven that he was highly esteemed. Daniel was used by God to have a tremendous influence on those around him, including foreign kings who held Israel captive. The book of Daniel ends with Daniel being promised his resurrection and reward. His experience is a goldmine of wisdom for Christians who want to live victoriously for Christ during the great tribulations such as those described in Revelation 12, 11, 15, 2, and 24. That's from revelationlogic.com. Ironically enough, so again, you get into, again, there are a lot of churches where they think just because you have gone to some European seminary that you can take anything you want to in any book of the Bible and make whatever point you want to. His point, again, isn't necessarily all wrong, but first of all, you're misquoting Revelation, misquoting, not just uh, misusing, you're misusing it you're assuming Babylon is not a literal Babylon um, because, again, you're ignoring Old Testament prophecy and you're also ignoring the basic grammar. There's nothing in the grammar, as we're probably going to be learning in Revelation 17, um, that would indicate that Babylon is anything other than Babylon. Okay, There's nothing in the grammar that would indicate that. Um, When we see something conspicuous, like a figure of speech, we use a figure of speech Right, We assume it's a figure of speech because that's how it's written. Because, again, he didn't use a theo- theological language when he wrote this book. God used human language. Human language has rules. We, we looked at that a little bit in the past. Um, but, again, when you go off, I, I don't want to call it the deep end, but when you go, when you dive into the waters of non-literal interpretation and all of these other things, you're you're going to be more prone to doing things like this. Your basic assumption is that we're going to be in the trib. So the Bible doesn't say that. So how do you have to move the Bible to come to that conclusion? This is one of the ways that they do it. Now, my favorite (laughs) of the arguments against the uh, tribulation is this one, or the pre-trib rapture. And I'll show you the quote about where we got this in a second. It says, Three of the four major rapture views teach that Christians will go through some or all of the Great Tribulation. But even those who believe they will be delivered before the Great Trib may also face periods of intense persecution, such as is common in our world today. Even though the Great Tribulation has not begun, there are millions of Christians now suffering greatly through tribulation, which might have been greatly eased, If they had been prepared, below are some thoughts on how to prepare for the great tribulation or tribulation. Food. Since those who refuse the mark of the beast will be unable to buy food, Revelation 13, you will have to have some non-normal sources of food. Many suggest that if you have a three and a half year supply of food, though the actual time should be considerably longer. Added to the inability to buy food, we also have to consider the global famine, which will be occurring at this time. Revelation 6, a well-fed person will eat about four pounds or about one half gallon of food per day, around 1,500 pounds a year or about two and a half tons per person for three and a half years. While dried foods like beans and rice account for less weight due to water absorbed during cooking, the problems with storing that much food quickly becomes obvious. Stored food supplies would obviously have to be supplemented through other means such as gardening. If you're not an experienced gardener, Don't believe you can suddenly supply your food with any decent food source. Hunting and fishing, sources will become depleted quickly. Foraging, learn now what is edible or not. Bird traps, learn now. Pet stew, historically delicious. Insects, here's a quick guide. There are links associated with this. Learn and plan now. Concerning the storage of food, it will be wise to store spices and seasonings. A little salt and pepper can help greatly in making bland or unappetizing food tolerable. We must also consider that conditions may force us to abandon our stored food. Having access to clean water can be a life or death struggle during the time of great tribulation, Revelation chapter 8. And even for many living in the world today, while there are many emergency sources of food, most are not safe to drink. Here are the basics of emergency water purification. First, water must be clean. If it has floating particles or looks cloudy, it should be filtered through some cloth, coffee filter, or such. Next, water should be purified. The best method is boiling. It should reach a rolling boil and then continue to boil at least one minute. There is no way to boil water. If there's no way to boil water, it can be purified with some chlorine, bleach, or iodine. This, however, will not make the water as safe as boiling. Add four to five drops of chlorine or iodine to each gallon of water. If none of this is available... Put the water in a sealed glass jar and take it in the sun for several hours. This will make the water much safer, though not pure. Shelter, this is a tough subject to a and plan for. We simply don't know what the future holds. Historically, people subject to persecution are forced to flee from their homes, and a person can die quickly without appropriate protection from the environment. Every backup shelter option you can obtain or plan for gives you one additional buffer from death by exposure. Most of our present energy needs for home vehicles and ETC fall into the uh, categories of luxury or comfort, but a few are life-sustaining necessities, like our shelter plans. Our energy plans will be subject to a great number of possible conditions and situations, and we must plan and prepare for a number of possibilities. We must not focus on short-term, non-renewable energy sources like batteries and candles, but should focus on long-term, renewable sources. But again, if forced to abandon our homes, we should probably leave those behind." One of the most common traits among tyrants is that they make every effort possible to leave their subjects defenseless. Citizens which pose no threat to a tyrant are easily controlled, but tyrants simply don't care about your personal safety. We should obtain now a few of the lesser politically targeted (laughs) options for personal protection. It may also help to learn how to make and improvise weapons. This is from thecomingtribulation.com. How to prepare for the tribulation. So much, so much wisdom there. Um, but this is, this is, and I did check their website. They are not selling survival gear. And they don't have affiliated links to make, to make money off of them. But this is, again, there are a lot of people that believe in this stuff. I know people that, again, there's nothing wrong with having extra food. But the goal of God's work in the tribulational period, assuming that all of this worked out for this person, is not for Christians to live in a bunker for three and a half years while the world burns. I I didn't read that when I read through Revelation. I also didn't read Christians in the trip during that either. But that's kind of the focal point that they have. That's kind of the perspective they have. And if they're expecting all this to happen, and they're trying to warn people to move and protect themselves during the time of Great Tribulation, and then some Christian says, hey, but what about the New Testament where it says that we're going to be raptured? Well, of course they're going to be angry with that. Of course they're going to go against that. So when we're looking at these different arguments, we have to kind of keep in mind something very simple. That first of all, this is nonsense, okay? Um, If this were a concern in the thought of God, he would have given us a warning. The only warnings given in the New Testament that are even somewhat similar to this is when God tells Israel to run for the hills, to go to the wilderness, to go to Petra, Um, But even in the midst of that, the description of what's actually going to happen, the prophesied event, shows God providing for them. It shows God uh, being the provider for the nation of Israel and their protector. He's the reason they make it through the tribulational period. He's the reason there is life on earth when he returns. So, again, when we're looking at arguments like this, when we're looking at points like this, it's easy to get kind of caught up in it. Like, oh, yeah. We probably ought to have supplies. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have supplies. We have things stored. We have, uh, what did he call them? Lesser politically targeted options for personal self-defense. Like, we, we have lots of stuff in there, okay? Um, but at the end of the day, do we jump on a train where people are all moving in that, like, are we jumping on the let's protect ourselves bus, or are we jumping on the maybe we should evangelize the nations, disciple the church, and prepare to be raptured and use the fact that we could be raptured at any moment to change how we choose to make our decisions in the present again what the new testament tells us to do is drastically different than this isolationist viewpoint um and there there are again not making an argument about political isolationism as a country i actually agree with that but again we looked at this and it kind of fits into what we were talking about last week But we are drastically out of time. So um, that being said, kind of a nonsense argument. Not to to make them disenfranchised or anything, but complete nonsense. The Bible has nothing to do with it. My summary's gone because I went too wrong reading that quote. So that being said, yeah, we'll look at that next week, and we will finalize our argument on um, imminence. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for today, the sunshine. It's so beautiful to be able to walk outside and not see snow for today. Um, we ask that you reverse the <laughs> the projections for next week's weather um, because it would be nice to get more done. We ask that you be with us in the service to come, that you would give us ears to hear as we're studying the book of Revelation, a very um, not complicated book, but a book that has been overcomplicated in the past. So I ask that you help us to perceive exactly what it says, to be inductive in our study and to learn. I ask that you be with us, especially with everyone struggling in our church. Our prayer letter is always long, Lord. We always have our needs, physical needs and otherwise, and I ask that you be with every member of this church and everything they're struggling with. I pray for this in Jesus' name.